This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Morner. Even though Senator Bernie Sanders won the popular vote in this state's caucuses on Tuesday, he may tie with Hillary Clinton in terms of Colorado delegates to the national convention. How delegates are allocated is more complicated because it includes superdelegates, party leaders who are mostly pledged to Hillary Clinton here. The Denver Post says Sanders and Clinton are likely to get 38 delegates each, with two superdelegates uncommitted at this point. The paper says those projections are backed up by data from the Associated Press. Former NPR political editor Ken Rudin foreshadowed this with us earlier this week. What happened in New Hampshire, for example, Bernie Sanders won 60 percent of the vote in New Hampshire to Hillary Clinton's 38 percent. And you would think he would walk away with the most delegates, but they left tied because of the superdelegates. It just drives the Bernie Sanders people nuts. The allocation of delegates isn't the only thing that confuses voters. The caucuses themselves proved vexing on Tuesday, especially for Democrats. And our Facebook page reflected that with complaints about long lines, hot, crowded rooms and general disorganization. You'll recall that only Democrats held a presidential straw poll here. Republicans did not. We took all the frustration expressed to the chairman of the Colorado Democratic Party, Rick Palacio. Rick, what is your assessment of how the caucus process itself went? Well, we're we're actually thrilled at the caucus process. We had 122,000 uh, registered Colorado Democrats that caucused for our two presidential candidates, which broke our record from 2008. So we're thrilled at the participation level. Uh, You tweeted Tuesday night with an exclamation mark. It's official. Just surpassed our 08 caucus attendance. The first response to that tweet came swiftly, calling the events a cluster and a disgrace. What's your response? Well, certainly uh, some people stayed in in line or caucus longer than they had initially planned. But overall, I, I really feel like people are fired up for our candidates Uh, not just both of our candidates, but they're also very, very enthusiastic about uh, opposing what we're seeing from the Republicans right now. You talk about long lines. There were reports of people leaving those long lines. This is from uh, one of our listeners, Jenna Berry of Denver, who wrote on Facebook, I got to the end of the line at 640, didn't get into the caucus site until 815. We had to convince our room to wait for the rest of the people in line before we took our straw poll. Then after the presidential poll, over half the room left. Uh, Meanwhile, hundreds of people in Boulder were turned away at some sites when the fire marshal ordered the doors closed. Other people gave up after a few hours waiting to vote and left, according to the Daily Camera. Um, What can you say about people who gave up entirely? Well, I think it's unfortunate that uh, people gave up entirely. And I think while, while many caucus locations, they operated at or above capacities, the obstacles really were a result of, of the immense amount of energy that Democratic voters have about this year's uh, election. When you look at what has happened across the country, Colorado is the only state that has met or exceeded turnout in a primary or caucus that we've seen so far uh, in the country. I want to go back to this notion. You say that, that some of what people experienced on Tuesday night was unfortunate. Is it poor planning on the Democratic Party's part? The caucuses are volunteer events, and I will say that I'm immensely thankful for the hundreds of of local volunteers and county party leaders that organized these caucuses. We have 3,010 precincts in Colorado, which is a a large number. And any time that you are trying to organize an event 
for 3,010 uh, precincts, all happening at one time, you're going to have some things that, that don't go well. Looking back, uh, perhaps we could have done more to, to find larger sites, but there was no, really no way of anticipating that we would have record-breaking turnout. Was there something different about the structure of the precincts or the caucuses this time around that, that fed into this? We did not have fewer locations than we've had in the past. We just had record-breaking turnout. Uh, again, these are volunteer operations. Uh, the check-in process is old-fashioned. They have paper lists. Uh, we have deadlines for affiliation. One of the things that slowed things down is there were a lot of unaffiliated voters or late registrants who tried to participate, and uh, we had to make sure that we checked their eligibility first. And that may have slowed some things down. We did anticipate that that was going to slow some things down, and we put some processes in place to check eligibility. But again, there were thousands of people at some sites and thousands of people who were ineligible uh, who kind of clogged the pipes, if you will. Do you owe some Democratic voters an apology? Sure, I would apologize uh, that people had to wait in line. And if anyone actually was turned away uh, or gave up and decided that they weren't going to wait it out, uh, I do uh, offer my sincerest uh, apologies. We heard from a frustrated John Dalton who caucused in Golden. He wrote on the CPR News Facebook page, quote, throw 150 in a hot room, hand them an envelope full of complicated instructions and have them learn the process as people start to get frustrated and just walk out without voting. Made me disgusted with the entire concept of a caucus. We need to move to a primary ASAP. What do you think of that idea that uh, caucuses no longer suit the state? Well, I, caucuses certainly have uh, have their place in certain instances, and I think that Colorado has outgrown caucuses at the presidential level. Um, I have long been in favor of moving to a, a dual-track parallel caucus system that elects delegates to state and national conventions and also uh, allowing registered Democrats and registered Republicans to cast their vote in a presidential primary election. Uh, I worked very closely with my counterpart, on the Republican side, uh, Brian Call, uh, the former chair of the Republican Party. And uh, the Republican-controlled Senate killed that bill, and that's why we ended up with a caucus as opposed to a presidential primary and a dual caucus system. So I'm in favor of figuring out a way that the two can balance them, themselves out so that registered Democrats and registered Republicans can participate on a much larger level, not just at the caucus side. Do you think that this will increase momentum behind converting back to a primary? And is it something that you, as the head of the Democratic Party, will, will push for again? I certainly will push for it. I've, uh, I've been having conversations with my Republican counterpart, Steve House, to talk uh, about this very thing. And we both think that this can be done through the legislature this cycle in a bipartisan way, uh, so that we have Republicans and Democrats coming together to make sure that we have more registered voters that are able to participate uh, in the system. One reason Colorado abandoned the presidential primary in favor of caucuses was money, uh, because taxpayers pay for a primary. Well, primaries are uh, taxpayer money. So if we move from a caucus system, which is entirely funded by uh, the parties, to a primary-type system uh, where everyone receives a ballot in the mail, uh, then that would have to be funded somehow by the state. Rick, thanks for being with us. No problem, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Rick Palacio chairs the Colorado Democratic Party. 
As for whether he thinks a primary should be open to unaffiliated voters, the largest voting bloc in the state, he says only if they're limited to a single party's contest. Palacio mentioned a bipartisan effort last year to move Colorado back to a presidential primary. Representative Alec Garnett, a Denver Democrat, says he'd like to introduce something similar this session. We need to and we will move on something before the next presidential primary in 2020. But what exactly that will look like, he says he isn't sure at this point. We have also been tracking a ballot measure that restores a primary in Colorado. Yesterday, though, it failed to qualify for the November ballot. Organizers say they're regrouping and may still bring it back this year. A taste now of an interview we'll bring you next week with Holocaust survivor Walter Plywaski of Boulder. When he was a child in Poland in the winter of 1939, Nazis forced his family out of their home. They wound up in a disease-ridden ghetto at first and then were forced onto a train. And when it stopped, they were at Auschwitz. Screams, shouts, stench of burning meat. Rouse, 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 out, out, out. And he... Two huge pillars of red and black fire. Did you know what that fire was? Did you have a suspicion? I had no idea at first, but it was pointed out to me. That's how they kill here, both by my dad and by one of the stripers. What is a striper? Those people who were accepted by the Germans to help them unload the trains. And these were Jewish people? Most were Jewish. Hmm. Forced to do it just to retain life for a while. Much more of Plawaski's story next Thursday on Colorado Matters. And we'll be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The immigration court in Denver has the longest delays in the nation. 933 days, according to an independent tracking site. And so immigrants who aren't in detention might not get a hearing until 2019. Denver immigration attorney Jennifer Casey is here to share what this means for her clients. She's a member of the American Immigration Lawyers Association and the Immigration Law Section of the Colorado Bar. And welcome to the program. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. So 9,420 backlogged cases. And as I said, hearings not being set, uh, set until about 2019. How did this come about, the situation? Well, Ryan, if you look at the immigration courts over the last three years um, uh, in Colorado, what we've seen is a reduction by about 50 percent of the immigration judges here locally. So we went from six judges in 2013, and we're now down to three judges in 2016. We've had an increase of about 20 percent in terms of the immigration cases in Colorado. So we were at about 7,400 back in 2013, and now we're right around 9,420, like you said, uh, currently. Um, So 50% reduction in immigration judges, 20% increase in cases. And then the third factor is that the immigration um, courts nationally have prioritized certain cases above other cases. Hmm. So we've got a priority docket is what we call it. And those are individuals who have entered the United States recently, specifically since May of 2014, who are either unaccompanied children 
or families uh, with children. And mostly we're talking about women and children, but not exclusively. And so they get hearings sooner. Exactly. So and that the, delays for others. Exactly. So those those cases are prioritized on the docket here at the Denver Immigration Court and other cases that have been on the docket at the Immigration Court here in Denver for years are pushed back. And so what we've seen over the past couple of years, and specifically since the fall of 2014, is many of the cases that are considered non-priority are have been set out until November of 2019. A year ago, it sounded like there was good news for the Denver, Denver Immigration Court, which is on Stout Street in downtown. Two Denver judges had been assigned to only hear cases in New Mexico and Texas. That ended in May, and so they were back to hearing Colorado cases. And the Department of Justice had promised to assign judges from other states to help out in Denver. Uh, but the backlog only grew, I guess. Right, exactly. We all were... Um Briefly, very excited <laughs> um, last, last spring when we thought that we'd uh, get our judges back um, to hearing our cases locally. But w- what happened is we had one judge um, right after that that then transferred out of state. And the judge that transferred out of state had been assigned to that priority docket of women and children and um, unaccompanied children that were not detained. So she left. And so one of our two judges that had just been recently freed up took over that docket. Hmm. And meanwhile, while we had seen um, cases, uh, excuse me, judges assigned from different parts of the country to handle some of the the locally detained cases out at that immigration uh, detention facility in Aurora, um, we'd seen judges come in to handle those cases. Um, The other judge that was freed up from hearing cases via video um, from the detention facilities along the border has been largely tasked to handle those cases. So while we were excited, those judges have now been kind of assigned to other dockets. We reached out for insight into this problem to the federal agency that oversees the immigration courts, the Executive Office for Immigration Review, but we didn't get a response. What we do know is this is not a problem unique to Colorado, is it? No, absolutely not. And this, this is partly because the Obama administration has been expelling immigrants in record numbers that must affect courts around the country. Absolutely. I mean, we've seen our uh, dockets, our removal dockets grow. Um, You know, as you said, the Obama administration has removed more individuals from uh, the United States through the deportation process than any other um, president in history. So, So that hasn't helped. Can you give me an example of what these delays mean for your clients? I mean, what does it mean for daily life? if yeah. you are for 900 days in, in some sort of limbo. Right. So, I mean, it, it really is a devastating impact on a lot of our clients. For for example, let's take somebody who is applying for asylum protection okay. uh, through the immigration uh, court. So many people... Um, you know, seek protection in the United States because in their home countries they face very a risk of a very serious harm or even death. Um, and we do have a responsibility to adjudicate those cases uh, expeditiously. Due to the lack of resources, that's not happening. But obviously. why is it devastating? In other words, right. if there are delays, they're in this country, they're presumably safe. Sure. Uh, might this be a, a benefit? Yeah. yeah, it might be for some. But for others that have strong cases, many have left uh, spouses children behind that are uh, running a very real risk on a daily basis. And so if these case, if these individuals here in the United States have their cases approved, then there is a method for them to petition to bring their loved ones here, spouses and children. And they can't do that. And I mean, I have a number of clients from uh, various countries around the world that, you know, day to day, they're, they're 
family members, their loved ones are live, are living with very real risk. They've had to flee from where they are. They often don't know where they have um, have gone, and so it's a ve- it's very difficult for them. On the other side, let's talk about cases that, you know, maybe people aren't seeking asylum protection, but they may have a pathway to lawful permanent residence or a green card, okay. right, um, through, a, through a qualifying family member. And if they had their case approved, they'd have their green card, they could live and work permanently in the United States, and most importantly, they can travel in and out of the United States. Many of these folks have lived here um, for 10, 20, 30 years and are finally have the opportunity now to receive their residency, and it's on delay. And many of these folks, particularly people that are my age, right, 30s and 40s, haven't seen their parents in their home countries for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And they're on something of a lockdown. They can't exactly. travel freely. They can't travel. If they leave, it's essentially self-deporting and they won't be able to come back. So I've had many painful discussions with clients saying, hey, listen, I understand that your mother is dying and I understand that you want to see her one last time. And certainly I would want that same thing. But your choice is to do that or to remain here with the life you've created with your your spouse and your family. So they're really difficult choices for people. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are talking about the backlogs at the immigration court in Denver, the longest delays in the nation, according to an independent tracking site. And with us is a member of the American Immigration Lawyers Association. That's Denver attorney Jennifer Casey. So, Jennifer, the answer is what? Is it that there needs to be more money for this court? Um, What are the discussions among attorneys about the solution? Well, I mean, the answer is comprehensive comprehensive immigration reform, Ryan. Um, You know, the the Senate bill uh, in 2013 uh, provided a pathway to residency and eventually citizenship for many, many people that on this docket, right? And so if we had had a change in the immigration laws that allowed people to easily apply for residency and citizenship, many of these people would be coming off this removal docket. In addition, that the Senate Bill 744 uh, it provided for uh, money to hire an additional 175 immigration judges, right? So what we need is additional resources for our immigration courts coupled with uh, reform of immigration laws to allow people that are here, um, that you know, are no criminal history, et cetera, that have lived here for a long time, um, to be able to move forward with the process and normalize their status. Critics, of course, referred to some of what you described there as amnesty and are not pleased with uh, uh, such an easy pathway. But couldn't the hiring of judges happen separately from immigration reform? I'm sure it could. But I mean, if you look at our numbers, right, we have upwards of 11 million people in this country without status. Um, currently, there's under 500,000 cases um, before the U.S. immigration courts, and we're virtually at a standstill, right? So, I mean, the number of immigration judges we would need to deal with these numbers, it's simply not tenable. Very briefly, there are candidates who are calling for the expulsion of illegal immigrants. Um, those who are in the country illegal, illegally, pardon me, um, could the clogged court problem get worse depending on who's elected in November? Well, of course. I mean, if if the those who are calling for the expulsion of individuals here without status um, are elected and are effective in trying to implement those changes, the courts could 
uh, become even more clogged. It's really important to remember that every individual who's in the United States without permission has the right to an, uh, a hearing in front of an immigration judge. We can't simply just remove these people, right? That's their due process right. There's simply no way with the current resources to do that. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Jennifer Casey, immigration attorney in Denver, one of many trying to work with a court system that is understaffed and overbooked in Denver. Just ahead, a new store that employs formerly homeless youth. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Homeless teens have often dealt with rejection, namely by their parents. But in Denver, some are learning to re-engage with people by working at a new second-hand store. Peak Thrift in North Denver is run by Urban Peak, a nonprofit that supports homeless kids and young adults. Misty Nicole, who is transgender, started working at Peak Thrift shortly after it opened in late January. She's 21 and recently moved into a subsidized apartment. But I literally had been sleeping out on the streets for like the last three years. She went back east for a while. For like six months, I was homeless in Richmond, Virginia, but that was because I decided to go out there to try to stay with my dad and he didn't want me to stay there, which is weird. Peak Thrift occupies a huge 6,000-foot space with the usual second-hand fare, clothing, stuffed animals, dishes. On Mondays, there is always a staff meeting, which is part business, part therapy. How is everyone feeling this week? Great. Okay. Is everyone well and healthy? Yeah, healthy, everyone yes, mentally well, <laughs> not so much. Store manager Catherine Westfall sits around a table with six staffers in the back of the store. One concern that comes up, what to do when donors drop off items that reek of smoke. And of course, we always want to be very grateful that they considered us and thank them profusely for coming to Peak Thrift and then gently explain that unfortunately we cannot accept this item. Westfall also has tips for connecting with shoppers. Asking them about their items that they have in their hand or making a comment like, oh my gosh, that's such a fabulous shirt that you're looking at there. Oh, a good, another good way to engage them is to ask them how they heard about us because that's good for us too so that we know where, why people are coming in. Looking on and nodding her head is Misty Nicole, that formerly homeless employee. She earns minimum wage here, a little over eight bucks an hour. If she does well, she can become a sales associate and make somewhere between nine and 11 an hour. I mean, I, I've just made it so far. Like, I never thought I would get housed. I never thought I would have a job like this, you know, even, you know, working in a thrift store at all. We are joined now by Chris Venable, who heads up education and employment for Urban Peak, the organization behind Peak Thrift. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Why a thrift shop? Well, we did a few years' worth of uh, business studying with the, an executive MBA program through DU. And um, the first group of students took a look at um, a variety of options, food cart to a coffee shop, um, to a screen printing shop. And what we found was that none of the original ideas had enough. Um, there was too much overhead cost or not enough opportunity for youth. And so the second group of students came in and they did a, uh, a really in-depth feasibility study on the thrift store concept. And we found that not only was the initial startup cost um, realistic, but the yield for the potential to create revenue that sustains programming while also providing um, a real substantial number of training and employment opportunities for youth was um, 
something that we wanted to do. Yeah, and so it was a business decision in that regard. Is there any evidence that stories like this make a difference? I think about the pizza joint that the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless opened and then closed. What's sure. the evidence for this kind of stuff? Um, I think even in that case where they had to close due to the you know the business not doing so well, the folks who got the opportunity to work there are still um, – profiting from that experience. Um, Some of them actually used to work with us, and we know that they're still working to this day in other areas. So I think what we're doing, and I might be stealing this from Goodwill, but we do a little bit of partnering with them, and they've been a great support to us throughout the whole startup process, is that uh, we don't want somebody to be a store associate in a thrift store for the rest of their lives, but we want them to get an experience where it's not just customer service, but it's also stocking shelves, um, cash register, all of those things, and they can take that and work with one of our employer partners throughout the city, whether it's in the hospitality or uh, restaurant industry. And so how long do you imagine that they would be with Peak Thrift? Uh, The subsidized work experiences that we do last 160 hours, and that can be either spaced out in a couple, two to three months, or it can be a one-month stint. And then once somebody completes that and we hire them on into a position, uh, six months to a year, we're hoping, so that they can take that experience and then thrive somewhere else in the, in, you know, in the local Denver business community. Let's talk about the young people who work there. How did they end up homeless? Oh, any number of reasons, um, from uh, mental health and substance abuse issues to gender identity issues and their parents not accepting them, um, generational poverty, you know, a lot of youth and young adults move to Colorado because they think they can make a go here and find that the uh, housing market's tough. And so they don't have a place to stay, can't find a job. Um, all of those reasons. Most of the youth and young adults that we work with have experienced some sort of trauma and abuse at an early age. And we are just trying to recreate healthy support networks for them so that they have opportunities to succeed. Are there things about their their pasts that makes it difficult for them um, to hold a job? You know, what is it that you're trying to, to break in terms of habits or, or their self, you know, their self-perception? Yeah. So at Urban Peak, throughout all of our programs, um, what we provide is um, not just education and employment programming that I oversee, but a convergence of services that is really recreating those support networks that were lost from our emergency shelter uh, street outreach team that actually walks around and engages in youth who are actively homeless and or running away, trying to get them involved in programming and get them off the street. Um, so somebody can come in and get a hot breakfast and get some um, get their clothes washed in our drop-in center. And in doing that, they might be introduced to somebody on our education and employment team who gets them involved in our job readiness training program. And so we're just trying to um, we're trying to help them break habits, trying to help them get um, support for issues that they might not otherwise get support for, whether it's substance abuse or emotional behavioral health issues. Uh, the store opened at the end of January. Is it making money, breaking even? Yeah. Um, well, we have one month of revenue. And, <laughs> and it, I, to be honest, it's not quite as uh, much as we were hoping in that first month. But I think that we are getting there. The more the word gets out, um, it's a wonderful store. It's a beautiful location at uh, 48th and Pecos. And I think that... Um, you know, little by little, we're going to be getting there. We're not losing money at this point, um, but we're also, you know, hoping to start generating more revenue. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, thank you. Chris Venable heads up education and employment at Urban Peak in Metro Denver, which has opened a new thrift store.
The National Park Service is cracking down on light pollution so that parks and monuments have dark skies for stargazers. CPR's Grace Hood followed some park employees on a training about light and dark. Hang outside a bar in downtown Fort Collins at night, and you expect to find rowdy college students. So you can imagine the puzzled looks that a group of Patagonia-clad national park workers got as they crowded outside a bar to study nighttime lighting. The first thing I want you guys to do is just kind of spread out a little bit, take a couple minutes to look and kind of count in your head at the number of different types of lights that you can see. That's Jeremy White. He's a physical scientist for the National Park Service's Natural Sounds and Night Skies Division. More than a dozen Park Service rangers and interpreters from across the country traveled to Fort Collins for a recent training. The goal is to teach workers how to identify light pollution inside parks. And in the city, there are culprits everywhere. Neon bar lights. There's decorative lights, lights that illuminate signs. The more you look, the more you see ineffective lighting. An LED light is installed too close to the ground. One light floods a nearby parking lot, nearly blinding pedestrians across the street. When we look at lighting and when you look at lighting in parks and in other protected areas, you want to think about why that light is there. For more than a decade, the division has worked to preserve the dark sky inside parks. The first step is to look at unnecessary lights. And every park's problems are unique. Black Canyon of the Gunnison National Park has 50 light fixtures. Grand Canyon National Park has about 5,000. We have a lot of work to do in our own house, so to speak, in cleaning up our internal lighting. Bob Meadows is a physical scientist with the division. With the night sky, we know exactly what the natural night sky is. And even better, it's still there. We haven't lost that night sky. He says there's two big concerns from the park's perspective. Number one, maintain dark skies. Night sky interpretive events are the park service's most popular programs. Number two, limit unnatural light's impact on nature. We could turn out the lights and it's there as it was 150 years ago or 200 years ago or 5,000 years ago. The impact of nighttime light on nature is what attracted P.T. Lathrop to the Fort Collins class. Pinnacles is very much a a nocturnal park. Uh, Most of our wildlife is nocturnal. Lathrop works at Pinnacles National Park on California's central coast. It has 16 species of bats and a salamander found nowhere else in the world. Lathrop's worried about unnecessary light making it easier for raccoons to find a nighttime snack. If that is starting to encroach into areas where that wildlife is, it makes it much more easy for a raccoon to just predate on that uh, salamander. Research has shown that artificial nightlight can impact animals' sleep patterns, breeding, and the migratory patterns of birds. Some solutions are as simple as turning off lights inside parks at night. Other times, the fix is found outside the park. You look at your neighbors. Sonia Papelka is from Dinosaur National Monument. In recent years, the park has started to see a glow from oil and gas equipment storage lots. At Theodore Roosevelt National Park in North Dakota, drill rigs light up the night sky. A recent plan for drilling on BLM land nearby Dinosaur Park includes instructions to shield rig lights. There's no such thing as a boundary for things like air quality, and night sky is one of those too, because any lighting that happens outside can have long effects. Travel south from Dinosaur to the Four Corners region, and you find some of the darkest national parks, including Canyonlands and Arches. Nate Ament works to keep them that way. He heads up a voluntary group that coordinates dark sky preservation between parks, recreational groups, and cities. One area of focus are cities that switch to LED streetlights. 
even from some of these really dark places, if, if a town close by has a lot of LED street lights, for example, that aren't shielded and are white, um, you can see the domes on the horizon. Those bluish-white lights can interfere with your ability to see the stars. The division has already started to coordinate with front-range cities like Fort Collins that are switching to LEDs. The city's lights can be seen from Rocky Mountain National Park. The Park Service says proper plans now in Fort Collins and other cities will help secure visible night skies for the next generation of stargazers. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. Coming up next, the huge phenomenon of the Tiny Desk Concert. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. You are hearing Galen Lee, a fiddle player and singer from Duluth, Minnesota. And today, NPR announced that she's the winner of this year's Tiny Desk Contest for a field of about 6,000 entries. She will get to perform a stripped-down set at NPR headquarters in Washington. This contest drew a lot of interest from Colorado musicians. More than 100 entered a video of themselves playing. And we got a list, which we asked our colleagues at CPR's Open Air to peruse. And host Alicia Sweeney joins me. Welcome back to the program, Alicia. Hi, Ryan. First off, why is playing a tiny desk concert so important to musicians around the country? Yeah, well, good question. NPR Music has a reputation all over the country as being a trusted source for new music discovery. And so playing a tiny desk concert is the holy grail of performance spaces. And it's really wonderful to have a contest like this that exists to give undiscovered artists and bands a chance to play the famed tiny desk. And it really is a desk. This is Bob Boylan's desk of NPR Music that he works at every day when he's not having some of the most exciting bands in the world stop by. So you know you've made it if you've played the Tiny Desk. Indeed, and I've seen like Adele, for instance, do this Tiny Desk concert, this very unassuming space. Yeah. So this year, as we look at the numbers for the Tiny Desk contest, musicians from all over have been so excited to play it. About 6,000 videos were submitted up from about 5,000 last year, and 132 of those entries were from Colorado, which is an even stronger turnout than from 2015. Let's talk about some of the entries from Colorado. First up, The Milk Blossoms. This is a Denver band that open-air listeners might be familiar with. Uh, What's unusual about The Milk Blossoms? Yeah, this is a really unique trio. We called their sound uh, during a recent open-air session, ukulele trip-hop. Just let that sink in. Ukulele (laughs) trip-hop. What does that sound like? Okay, two vocalists that grew up together, uh, longtime friends from Durango. They live here in Denver. One of them sings, plays ukulele. The other beatboxes, you know, a vocal percussion like popularized in hip-hop. Here is Greyhound. It's the entry into the Tiny Desk Contest from the Milk Blossoms of Denver. Ukulele trip hop, I love it. (laughs) 
As you looked through the submissions at Open Air, did you find any artists that were new to you? Yeah, it's been really exciting for me. And this next artist, Shrey Davi, is new to Open Air. She is from Boulder, is that right? Boulder, Colorado, and she sings while playing an omnichord. An omnichord? Yeah, so this is like the, the 1980s electronic instrument. It's sort of an, an electronic auto harp with built-in drum machine. And she has these childlike vocals, as we're hearing. In a song called Nino is a Vampire. A bit haunting, and I think at the beginning of the video, she actually says, I'm here to creep you out. Yeah, she, she she's like, I'm here to creep you out. It kind of comes off as charming, though, because she, she's, you know, she's a lovely performer. Um, but yeah. Yeah, nice to meet a new act out of Boulder. Let's go back to, to Denver and a folk singer named Patrick Detlefs, who is in the Tiny Desk concert for the second year. Uh, tell us about him. Yeah, Patrick, an Americana singer-songwriter, really sparse sound. He's come to our studio a, a few times in the past, so people might recognize his name. And like you mentioned, he's entered both years. And this time around, he kept his entry a lot simpler. Last year, he uh, he was on his porch. You see him carry out the desk. His friends gather around him. They perform this song. But this year, um, the, his little tiny desk that he has has a computer on it, like he's playing in his home recording studio. And he sits and sings while playing guitar and he has his friend and frequent collaborator on pedal steel and they make really beautiful sound together and this um, simpler i suppose video simpler song is called had i known as we spoke last i heard your voice nine years ago only I know. It left me so angry, broken and lost when I The man has a set of pipes, that is for sure. That is Patrick Detlefs. Uh, up next, another synth-pop band from Denver called Rossonian, like the name of that old hotel in Five Points. Tell us about Rossonian's submission to the Tiny Desk Contest. Okay, so first of all, I should mention that their video piqued the interest of the Tiny Desk Contest staff so much that they posted it on their website. So that's kind of a big deal. And so the video was filmed in a warehouse where they have studio space, and it's very industrial. In fact, to get to their location where they film, they had to haul lots of gear up two flights of stairs to get to this perfect perfect spot. <laughs> and they have uh, three singers in the group and three synth players. Uh, you know, they, they sing and play synths. The fourth member plays drum pads. And the song that they submitted that we're going to hear, this, it's a new song from them, and it's about being inside a video game. Love is a Wasteland.
boy, all of us couldn't help but moving to that one in the studio from Rossonian, Love is a Wasteland. It's one of the Colorado bands that entered, but sadly did not win this year's Tiny Desk Contest. Um, so there's a Colorado Springs act in your roundup that sounds very different from the other artists on the list. Tell us about Tejon Corner Street Thieves. Oh, yes. This one's going to transport you to the Louisiana Bayou. I hear Cajun influences with this band. They're fun. They're raucous. The trio has a blues singer who plays guitar. There's a banjo player. And this guy that's taken a washboard and rigged it with a cymbal attached to it and some <laughs> other sounds. And you can really hear the washboard on this And uh, I think you're going to like it. And I can't help but think as I watch the video, the banjo seems like it's seen a lot of a lot of playing. And I'm I'm like, I wonder what the story is behind that banjo, because you can tell that that it's been played a lot. It's a lot of fun. You might not be surprised that the the name of the tune is Whiskey. Whiskey. Oh, those raw vocals. Yeah. So good. Okay. That's Tejon Corner Street Thieves from Colorado Springs. And that was another new music discovery for us uh, that I went to look into more on open air. Very cool. I suppose that's part of the mission of the Tiny Desk Concert and Contest. Finally, a bolder duo called Ocelot. Uh, kind of like the cat. Um, yeah. This is another act that's a bit outside the boundaries of what you'd usually hear on open air. Yeah, two musicians playing hammered dulcimer and percussion. It's really original. It almost has a Middle Eastern quality. We're kind of hearing it now. And their video shows the hammered dulcimer, which is a stringed instrument you play with hammers and a percussive sound. And they, they also have a homemade wooden drum, what it looks like in the video. A tune called Remedies here. Ocelot from Boulder. Thanks so much, Alicia Sweeney. Thank you, Ryan. From Open Air. You can view videos from Colorado artists who entered the Tiny Desk Contest, that is, at openaircpr.org. Ten-year-old Jack Bonneau of Broomfield has built an empire of lemonade stands in the metro area with a growing sales team of kids. The New York Times picked up the story in last Sunday's paper, but we beat them to the punch. Here's Nathan Heffel's conversation from last summer with Jack and his dad, Steve. Welcome to you both. Hi. Hi. So first off, did you bring us any lemonade? Yes, we did. What would you charge me for it if I went to one of your stands? Um, $2.75 for a 16-ounce cup. I've seen in my neighborhood that a glass of lemonade's going for like 50 cents, so how how do you balance that? Well, um, most, um, kids don't have, um, 16-ounce cups. They just have, like, um, 5-ounce cups, so the cups are just, um, bigger, and we account all the expenses for the ice and stuff like that, and that's the total it makes my, um, gross, um, profit 
per cup is um, a dollar um, and forty nine cents in. That's a fifty four percent net margin. Do you take credit cards? How yes. do you? How do I pay for it? Um, you can pay with cash, credit cards, and even Bitcoin. Tell me about these other sites at farmers markets in Erie, Lafayette, Louisville that other kids actually staff. So at my lemonade stand, um, if a young kid comes by, I hand them one of my flyers, um, and they'll go to my website jackstands.com, um, and they can sign up and run their own lemonade stand in a farmers market in Erie, Lafayette, and Louisville. We provide everything, um, the stand and the lemonade, and they'll get a portion of the profits. What is that? That term in terms of profit, how does that work? Jack stands will charge um, a few fees, um, so a thirty-five dollar reservation fee that is refunded at the end of the Jack stands time. Also, um, a ten dollar stand rental, seven dollars and fifty um, cents for the insurance, and or percentage of the of their gross sales um, based on a sliding scale of how many number of cups they've sold. If they sold less than 25 cups, we'll waive these fees so the kids can walk away with something because they still have to pay for the lemonade and the iced tea. What m- might another kid working with jack stands make? I'll make 30 to $60 and the operator will make 30 to $60. Uh, are, are these kids similar in age to you? Yes, they are um, 7 to 11. So, so you're actually overseeing people older than you or kids older than you? Yes. Steve, I have to ask, you know, what's it like watching your son working with these other kids? It's been a fantastic experience, not just for Jack and the different things he's get to do, but also working with the kids and the parents. The parents are very – it's a great bonding experience for the parents with their kids, but also they're able to put themselves out there um, selling, learning about business. Jack actually goes through at the end a, a mini P&L statement to show uh, what the profits are and what the tips are, what they're walking away with. So a profit and loss statement, it just um, helps you figure out how much money you've made, what your revenue is. Um when the, when the kids come to the stands, he counts the bank um, in order to make change, and so that's his starting cash. And then at the end, they he, Jack has them count the ending bank and then subtracts that out for their revenue, and then they go through uh, the different expenses where they're accounting for sales tax, accounting for the lemonade, the iced tea, farmer market fees, et cetera, in order to produce uh, what the profit is at the end. Uh, do you have permits to operate your stands? Yes, we have um, all the health permits that um, are needed. We have proper licensing and training. To put the ice in, we use tongs, not our fingers. And I'm assuming, Steve, you, you've been helping him dot his I's and cross his T's? Yeah, we go down to the uh, state capitol to get the sales tax licenses, and, and Jack's, you know, he's the forefront, make, you know, working with the, the officials to do that, certainly. Let's go back to when this all started. Uh, it wasn't this summer. It was uh, the summer before, in, in, in 2014. Yes. I understand that you were broke and wanted to buy a toy. What was that toy? Um, so I wanted the Lego Death Star, which cost $400. What is a Lego Death Star? Um, so it's a huge Lego that has 4,000 pieces. Um, and it's um, big, round, and... Um, evil. And you have to put it together by hand, I'm assuming. Yes. I asked my dad if I could get it. Um, He said, sure, you can, but I'd have to pay for it. So um, I didn't know what I was going to do. So um, I asked my dad, well, how am I going to make $400? He says, well, why don't you start a lemonade stand? Uh-huh. I thought it was a great idea. 
I knew that a lemonade stand at the end of my street would take forever to get $400. (laughs) So um, I started at a farmer's market. And so did you end up making enough money to get this Death Star? Yes, I did. And how do you like it? I love it. Um, I built it with my friends. So, yeah, it was really fun. What advice do you have for other kids out there who want to go into business like you? I don't know, really. Um, Just um, have fun doing it. Um, Make sure it's something you really want to do and that you're passionate about. Also, just make sure you're really going to be committed to it, not just leave it go and let someone else work for it. Make sure you're going to be committed to it for all your life and just have fun doing it. That is nine-year-old Jack Bonneau. He is building a lemonade stand empire called Jack's Stands. He and his father Steve spoke to Nathan Heffel. They live in Broomfield. Last year's sales topped $25,000, and Jack wants to expand beyond Colorado. He was featured in the New York Times just this past weekend. I'm Ryan Warner. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. Thanks for spending time with us.